and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So today is August 26th, it's a Friday, I know we're supposed to be doing the drive time Remnant thing um, today, but uh, I just got the schedule, it's like my last Friday before I head back home, we've got a bunch of family stuff in the works, and um, actually I also just have a bunch of work in the works, so I figured we would postpone that. Um, I'm looking forward to getting home. I've had a great time here. Uh, not as relaxing as maybe I would like. But then again, I'm actually very bad at relaxing. Um, it's not my, I should say, I'm very bad at relaxing on vacation. I'm actually pretty good at it at home. Um, and, uh, but um, tomorrow we send uh, our daughter off back to school, and which is kind of a bummer. And uh, yesterday was my 21st wedding anniversary. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I would in a heartbeat. It was a great wedding. It's been a great marriage, knock on wood. Um, but having a anniversary the last week of August has always been a problem for me. It always sort of catches me off guard, um, in part because a lot of the time we are in you know, very random places. I remember our first 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 anniversary we were in i think uh deadwood south dakota and um because we were usually driving back from the pacific northwest or something like that um in august and for most of the time we've had a kid with us so it just it's never been like propitious for uh the kind of uh anniversary celebration that uh the fair jessica deserves um but I got I got things in the works to make up make it up to her. Um, so uh, where to begin? So for those of you, you fools, you mad fools who don't subscribe to the G file, um, you know the one for members only. Uh, on Wednesday, I wrote this sort of impressionistically and weirdly, in part because um, I had a whole bunch of other stuff I had to do, and so I just sort of brain burped it out there, but people got a very positive reaction to it. And I think about this a lot. So I'm just going to rehash it for a second here, I guess. And then um, I promise I'll get to some of the punditry. Um, I'm just, this is how I sometimes do this is when I'm not sure what I want to talk about. I talk about the thing I've re recently written about so that I can warm up um, and get into whatever else is coming next. Um, so you know, one of the thing, one of the, one of one of the most influential books for me was this book by this guy James Scott um, called "Seeing Like a State," and he makes this argument in that book that basically the hit the history of the modern state or of the state in general, going back a very long time, is the history of constantly trying to make popul the population of a particular country or a particular, I shouldn't say just particular country because lots of empires have states that, and more than one country in them. Um, um, there's a great line by Acton somewhere, which I've been looking to refine that is something along the lines of, um, is, you know, 
it is a poor nation that only has one country in it or something like that. Anyway, um, the point being that the from going back from the earliest city-states, what states want to do is make their populations more legible, by which I mean um, they can read them. They can read them in the sense that they um, have access to all of the data about them, their income, obviously, right? A big part of this is driving, uh, is driven by just revenue tax collection, um, but also the ability to conscript young men into the military. Um, um, also, you know, it's why you have censuses going back to ancient Rome and before that, um, because you want to know who has what skills, who owns what property. Um, there really is just an enormous number of reasons why the state is always hungry for more data about its population. And it wants to get it ever more granular. This is why, like in the, I think it's like the 1600s in Europe, um, states start clamping down and, and, and making um, last names mandatory and universal. Uh, because they weren't for a very long time, which is, you know, one of the reasons why uh, so many people's last names line up with some profession, Miller, you know, that kind of thing, Taylor. Um, um, and also why so many last names have son at the end of it, because people used to just be their father's son was sort of their name. Um, I'm sure I'm giving a very dumbed down version of, of last names, but you get the point. And um, it's not just these days, it's not just states that want to have legible citizens or a legible citizenry or population. Every business and institution, particularly in the media, is just hungry for as much data as possible about customers, about people, about their habits, about their wants, their desires, their search histories, their consumer habits, their travel habits. Um, you know, I, I kind of made this point when I was talking with Klon uh, Kitchen about TikTok, where, you know, TikTok hoovers up massive amounts of data about people who have TikTok on their phones, about where they go, how long they're on, what they're interested in, um, when they wake up, when they go to bed. Um, you know, there are data brokers out there beyond just TikTok, you know, who um, sell all sorts of stuff about like where you parked your car, where you stopped for gas, what, uh, you know, what, what, what malls you go to, um, how long you are on some websites and how long you are not on other websites. And the point I made with Klon was that like, uh, you know, polling, which obviously has its uses when you think about how rudimentary that data is, right? It, it's, it's, it's asking people questions um, about what they like and don't like and, and, and various things. And I, I think, you know, sometimes the answers are honest and accurate to one extent or another, but there's an enormous amount of sort of uh, social desirability um, bias and other sorts of biases that people answer the question, let's just say they answer the question the way they think they're supposed to answer the question. And sometimes that means they answer honestly and sometimes that means they answer what they think is honestly. And sometimes they just say 
what they think they're supposed to say, whether they believe it or not. Um, and the questions are often, you know, flawed or leave out things or whatever. Um, and yet we find polling data, you know, and other kinds of survey research immensely useful. But when you compare that to um, the kind of data we get as everything in our lives becomes digitized, right, where, um, you know, you can even be eavesdropped on by your home appliances. I'm not saying that's going on to the extent that some people claim, but like it's certainly technologically possible now. And it's certainly true that, you know, your phone can not only tell somebody every place that you've been all day, it can like literally say, it can literally tell like when you've slowed down, um, when you've, you know, what, what, what stores you stopped in front of all of these kinds of what stores you go into. If you look at the, the apps that iPhones will recommend when you change where you show up at, it's really kind of spooky how it kind of knows where you are and says, Oh, you might want the Starbucks app now or the whole foods app or whatever. Um, that kind of data, which is of hundreds of millions of people in real time all day long, every single day is so much deeper and richer and broader than polling. Right. I and mean, it is, it really gives you, it's more of like a, a die marker into the internal organs of society. And, um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Klan is so skeptical about, you know, why, why, why Klan is eager to have TikTok. Um, you know, have I can't remember if he wants it banned. He certainly wants everybody off of it, and he wants America to give it, you know, uh, scrutinize it much more closely. But uh, where was I going with this? Oh, so anyway, yeah. So the 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 point I made, wanted to make was that if you look at, I, I you know, so I had this conversation with Chris Starwald about his book earlier in the week, and um, and one of the big points of his book, which is great, and everyone should go out and buy it. Um, and then send him pictures of you buying it saying, I got this because Jonah told me to, and so I could rub it in his face. But, um, one of the things that we were seeing now with, with the sort of balkanization of the media, as we, you know, as the cliche goes, is that smaller sites, uh, more, uh, bespoke media outlets have so much information about their audiences that they can't help but start telling their audiences what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Now, I know I've made this point about that being a problem with the media for a long time, but this is a, it's a slightly different way of making a, the point. It's not just that when you, when, when the media ecosystem, ecosystem breaks down into a whole bunch of small players or smaller players that everybody is trying to find their specific niche that they want to speak to. That's definitely happening. It's also that they're, they are basically eavesdropping on their niche. They have data at a granular level about what, um, their audience wants. And even if you thought that you had to do things in a sort of journalistically responsible way and tell people what they need to hear rather than just what they want to hear, you're still going to tell it to them in their language, in the way that they want to hear it. And what, what got me thinking about this was 
you know, I was listening to the the Mike the daily podcast of the New York Times, and on the weekends they do this long read thing or um, slow read or whatever I can't remember what it's called, and it's basically they just take one of the magazine articles and they get a professional voice guy to read it. And um, as I mentioned in the conversation with Starwalt, it was, I just thought it was funny. Like they have the actual author of the piece intro the, the narration. He doesn't read his own article, but he does intro it. And his like the opening sentences is about how, you know, people who buy, anytime you participate in the global economy, you have an impact on uh, climate change and people who buy, um, you know, yoga mats, CBD oils and wood burning pizza ovens um, might feel guilty about climate change. And it just, I don't know, it just struck me as so weird. It just kind of kind of lit up in the matrix code. um, Why someone would pick those three products as the examples of what would arouse um, carbon footprint guilt. And because, you know, normally we talk about like private jets and and um, and pickup trucks and um, and 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 Hummers as the kind of things that have a big carbon footprint. Um, We don't normally say, oh, you should feel ashamed of yourself for buying that yoga mat. And it just seems to me that, you know, it doesn't have to be like because the author was pouring over the purchasing habits of his of the New York times readership and said, okay, these are the three products that we're going to move today or that we're going to mention today or that our readers are more inclined to buy or anything like that. But it was just seemed very obvious that this was a way of talking to the New York times readership in terms that they would understand. And let's think about it this way, right? I mean, there's nothing inherently more outrageously carbon footprinty about yoga mats and CBD oils. I don't know, maybe there's, maybe you can make a case for wood burning pizza ovens, but like the New York times isn't going to say as it tries to communicate with its own audience, you know, you might feel guilt um, about your carbon footprint when you buy your next AR 15 or your next Hummer, or when you are constructing a giant wooden cross on your property, you know, it's just like, it's like, like that, would just be those would just be shibboleths that alienated the listeners and said, "What are you talking about?" Rather than said, "Oh yeah, no, I, I I get what you're saying," and I think that I see this as kind of a very small, um, almost uh, microscopic example of this larger thing that you start seeing around where it's this tendency where not, and not just media outlets, but politicians, political institutions, cultural institutions, educational institutions, they have such unbelievable feedback from their own customers and their own audiences that, um, in part, and not in, in part because they're studying it, but in part because they come from the same social milieu that their, their audiences and customers and, um, um, you know, and voters come from, and sometimes not, it doesn't really matter. But the point is that sometimes it's just a sort of, uh, like congregating with like, and sometimes it's that they've so internalized the language of their customers that they don't even realize they're speaking the same language in a way to sort of communicate with them. And so you end up getting these, you get this sort of audience capture all over the place. And, um, 
Um, and there's inherently nothing wrong with that, right? I'm actually, you know, I'm Captain Federalism. I like cool little communities. I like a patchwork of 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 real diversity, which means diversity of communities and diversities of ways of living, not just diversity of individuals. But you know, I want to, I want to, I want this. As people have heard me say a million times, I want this to be a more interesting country to drive across, where you stop in different places where they do things differently. So I got no problem with that sort of disuniting of America or balkanization or whatever that a lot of people have a problem with. I don't like the idea of a homogenized United States of America. My problem is with the way in which people and institutions and leaders think that because the only feedback they're getting is of one sort, that that feedback is representative of the entire United States of America, or that catering to to those voices that you know whether it's on the right and all talk about the the real America or all that kind of thing, or it's on the left where it's that sort of cosmopolitan you know uh, big city uh, groupthink. If you think that those are the only um, people out there, because those are the only people you hear from, you are going to continue to alienate the people that you don't hear from. And it just becomes this, this perpetual feedback loop. And I think that, that one of the advantages in the old days of not being able to see populations with such um, unbelievable specificity is you kind of had to put yourself out there. You know, um, if you tell me that I have to go speak to a whole room full of right-wingers and you tell me that 90% of them voted for Trump and you can give me all sorts of, of uh, finely tuned information about them, I'll have a much easier time speaking to that audience than if you tell me, hey, we picked 2,000 people or 200 people randomly off the street and they're in the room. And... The, the way I would talk to an audience, I wouldn't change what I believe. I wouldn't change, you know, I wouldn't say things that aren't true. But if I was trying to make the case for, I don't know, uh, not canceling student debt, I would talk about it in one way if I knew basically the attitudes and perspectives of everybody in the audience. And I would talk about it another way if I didn't. And I think this is sort of analogous to the way newspapers and TV news and movies and 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 just vast swaths of our our culture and our institutions behaved is that when you didn't have the big polarization, the big sort and all that, um, when you had both Republicans and Democrats, rich people and poor people, uh, black people and white people basically watching the same news and buying the same newspapers, it forced information providers and politicians and, 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 and business people to sort of hedge their bets and say, Hey, look, we really don't know how much this is going to offend this group or that group or whatever. So let's just play it straight. And now when everybody is narrow casting and targeting their audiences because they have such great data about what the people that, you know, let's put it in terms of a politician. Yeah. Other people are going to hear what Ted Cruz has to say, but if Ted Cruz has the data down, to a fair thee well, that the persuadable voters that he cares about or the voters that are ordering his column that he needs to turn out want to hear X, 
that's how he's going to talk because he won't care about what the people he pisses off have to say about him. And in fact, he might want to piss those people off because it will being attacked by the, by the right kind of people is actually good for Ted Cruz. And I think you can do the same thing for AOC. I think you can do for the same thing for MSNBC and for Fox and for CNN, for all these kinds of things that the more, the more, transparent your audience is, the more likely you are to talk to it on its own terms, which again, perpetuates this sort of exclusion thing, because the more perfectly pitched to one audience you are, the more imperfectly pitched you are to other audiences. And so it's just, it's just another aspect of this, of, of this sort of balkanization stuff that I don't think people really appreciate. And I guess, and and also you're just going to get things wrong, you know, um, like, you know, I dare you to like leave a recorder and like to eavesdrop or 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 listen in on a phone call from uh, your friends or your business, you know, or your colleagues or your spouse or whatever, and listen to only to you know I don't know twenty minutes of it. Whatever those twenty minutes are, are going to have an enormous influence over how you talk to your colleagues or your friends or your or your family members simply because that's the information that you have like you've now gotten some sort of inside information and so our brains tend to overweight the information that we have versus the information that we don't have and that's a totally human thing and so when we get these insights um into our audiences and into their habits and expectations uh, we lean into them, or I should say, we that leaders lead into them, institutions lean into them more than they otherwise might. And um, I just think it's one of these interesting ways to think about this galvanic, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, centrifugal force that is working through our culture. Is that the more the more we know about certain groups, desired groups, certain markets, certain audiences. Um, the more we become symbiotically, utterly dependent on them. I promise you there was, um, there was more mirth and jocularity in the G file version of, of this. Um, but, uh, um, so you can go check that out. Um, I mentioned student loans. Um, I know I'm not supposed to talk about Twitter on here, but I got into a big thing on Twitter about it. Um, I just find the whole approach, um, morally, economically, and politically um, um, indefensible, what Biden is doing. Uh, it seems, from the reporting I've seen, it seems almost entirely an example of what I am talking about that um, are sort of analogous to what I am talking about, that they don't care about the people this will piss off. What they need is the audience that will like it. Um, because going into midterms, the one demographic that, uh, sort of sits on the sidelines are young college educated people and, um, giving them $10,000 and say, Hey, show up to vote or promising that you'll get, they'll get $10,000 if they vote the right way or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be implicit. It doesn't have to be explicit, um, is just a way of, 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 of pandering to a, a certain segment of society that, look, I, I know for a fact, I mean, I know this, I don't need it pointed out to me constantly by finger wagging people. 
that there are people struggling to pay their student loans, that there are people who've made bad choices. Um, there are people who made good choices that worked out badly when it came to taking out a lot of student debt. Um, I'm sorry for them, uh, depending upon whether, you know, what, what choices they made. But this idea that this is the most deserving segment of society for this kind of handout um, just doesn't pass the smell test. It's just, it's sort of ridiculous to me. Um, there are lots of people who are struggling out there who never had a chance to go to college, who um, would in a heartbeat, you know, trade socioeconomic positions with people who did go to college, but have a lot of student loans. Um, like I could even, you can even make a case for, you know, a different form of loan forgiveness that aimed at, you know, uh, you know, that, that cut out lawyers and, um, and doctors and MBAs, um, but included, you know, nurses and physicians assistants and, you know, EMTs and other people who may have got student loans from a community college. Like I, I'd be much more open to the idea of forgiving student debt for people who just went to community college, but who didn't go to the top 100 schools or 200 schools or whatever. I could come up with a whole bunch of ways of doing this that I think would be morally just more morally just and, um, um, and more equitable on the left's terms, not on my terms. Like I'm against this just on the sort of the, 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 basic conservative grounds, but like, even if you convince me that we had to do this, um, for whatever reasons, I think I could come up with a better left wing version of this if politics weren't the issue. But of course, politics are the issue. And the thing I got into a stupid spat about is like the white house, um, Twitter account yesterday was going after every, every congressional Republican critic including some people who I think are utter jackwads who I despise, um, who was criticizing the student loan bailout by saying um, so-and-so, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, which I think listeners know I, I am not exactly a fan of MTGs. Um, she, uh, you know, she, she has a construction business or something, and they took out PPP loans and had them forgiven. And the White House and the White House went to, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, I didn't count them all, but a bunch of uh, Republican critics who took PPP loans and had them forgiven and wants to make the case that these guys are hypocrites. And Biden likes to say that this is a this this is this loan forgiveness is recompense for the, all the billionaires who get sweetheart deals and whatnot. Now, there are two things. You know, th those are different things. The PPP and the billionaire talk, both are really stupid. The the PPP thing, you know, the reason why they did PPP and, you know, we at the dispatch, we looked hard at the idea because like PPP or the, the pandemic blew up in our faces right after launch. And we had to cancel all sorts of plans um, and change all sorts of plans uh, to deal with it. Um, and we looked hard at the PPP thing and. Steve and I and Toby, who was still with us at the time, uh, we just sort of concluded we weren't going to do it, right? And a part of it was because if you read the fine print closely, it it re one of the requirements was 
that what was it that you had to that you that but for this loan you would be letting people go and that just simply wasn't true because we were still in the staffing up playing phase we had raised money so um we just think didn't think in all honesty or all in good principle that we could take the money but you know we, we looked at it seriously i know lots of people on the right who did take the money and you know i have mixed feelings about it um i didn't love the program but at the same time the program was intended to save the economy right the program was intended to prevent great depression style unemployment really really quickly and you know you have to if if time is never of the essence right if you have an infinite amount of time to come out with the best plan then it you have no excuse for it not being the best plan if you have to do something really really fast if the house is on fire and um you know you opt to use the garden hose indoors which is not ideal or you opt to destroy some vase that is really valuable to your family but it's full of water to keep the curtain fire from spreading over the rest of the house your excuses is that you were thinking in the moment and you had to act fast and ppp was a way of preventing a wholesale catastrophe in the economy and part of the deal was that if you didn't lay off people if you maintained a certain level of employment and a couple other things um the loans would be forgiven. They were essentially, you know, grants to keep people employed. And, um, and they were designed, and PPP was designed by Congress. This is completely different. No one took out these student loans on the promise that they were going to be forgiven. Um, moreover, Joe Biden isn't getting legislation to do this because he couldn't. Because Congress would never pass something like this, rightly so. This actually is inviting all sorts of Democratic criticism. Jason Furman unloaded on this thing. The Washington Post editorial board unloaded on it. It's a terrible, inflationary, bad idea with enormous amount, enormous amount of moral hazard designed solely to pander to people. And it is being done unilaterally by the chief executives. There's just an enormous difference between a piece of bipartisan legislation in a crisis that does what it is designed to do from the outset versus a ad hoc, um, off the cuff BS piece of executive, um, fiat, uh, and this attempt to sort of make people who took PPP loans in, you know, into sort of outrageous hypocrites and fat cats is just grotesque demagoguery. Um, and it just, it, it particularly infuriates me because, you know, like all these people keep saying to me like, oh, you, you're only against it because you're, you know, you're a partisan Republican. And I kind of feel like I've earned my stripes as a nonpartisan, you know, as not a, as not a partisan of the Republicans at this point. I just think it is absolutely terrible, terrible, um, way to do politics. And there's going to be enormous moral hazard to it. Of course, part of the moral hazard is that part of it is that this is moral hazard. This is moral hazard for the things that Trump did during the pandemic and not during the pandemic. And this is, you know, this is the moral hazard of executive of the executive branch governing through executive order going back decades. It's unfolding 
moral hazard, but it's only going to get worse because of this. And um, I just find it just, I, I cannot find a good argument for it. Um, um, I can, you know, there, there are, there, I get the arguments that people are making. I hear what they're saying. Um, I could even go along with some significant level of debt forgiveness if it came with a serious restructuring of the higher education system, which I think is so flawed and messed up. But instead, all this is doing is creating a down payment for more unjustifiable debt relief down the road. And I just think it's, it's gross. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have um, a very expensive piece of public policy that, by the way, will negate basically all of the alleged deficit reduction in, in the Inflation Reduction Act, Reduction Act. So don't tell me about how much, you know, Joe Biden cares about reducing the deficit. Uh, and I guarantee you, just mark it down now, you're going to have Joe Biden out on the stump, who in one paragraph is going to talk about how much he lowered the deficit. And then in the next paragraph, he's going to brag about student loan forgiveness. And, um, and he's never going to acknowledge that basically the deficit reduction and the inflation reduction act was simply there to pay for his unilateral lawless executive order on debt reduction. But the thing I was going to say is like, as a matter of politics, like whenever you're going to do a massive piece of a very expensive piece of public policy, um, particularly when you're going to do it on the fly, and it just so happens to reward the constituency of one party and um, and pretty much only one party. I mean, yeah, obviously there are Republicans who have student debt um, who are going to benefit from this, but as at, on the macro scale, this is. Um, you know, this might as well be, you know, a king rewarding one of, uh, you know, you know, one of his strongholds, which with, you know, um, an extra cathedral or an extra bridge or whatever. I mean, this is, this is purely a partisan based play that benefits a huge slice of the democratic coalition. And I just find it hilarious the way people who are defending it are saying anybody who criticizes it is doing it. So for partisan purposes, for sure, there are people criticizing it for partisan purposes, but, um, there are plenty of nonpartisan arguments against it because it's just crappy policy. Um, speaking of partisans, um, so apparently Blake masters, this guy running for Senate from Arizona, He's been saying for um, months now, a year now, I don't know how long, but for a long time, it was up on his website until about 48 hours ago or 24 hours ago that he was 100% pro-life, life begins at conception. He wanted a, a personhood law that made, um, uh, um, that made sort of the, the, the full-throated 100% pro-life position, um, federal law across the country, which recognized fetal personhood so that if you had an abortion, um, at any stage of a pregnancy, it would, um, I don't know if he would have considered it a murder, but he would have considered it some form of homicide or, um, illegal. And it turns out that, uh, 
he's taking it in the neck in Arizona um, on the abortion issue. So he apparently, um, in perfect MAGA fashion, attacked people for characterizing his position accurately and then went and changed his website to say that he's against um, late-term abortions. And other than that, he's much more sort of flexible on it. And um, and so this, like, uh, like, uh, all right, so first, of all, first of the politics. Like, I don't know Masters. I don't think I've ever met him. Um, I've met Peter Thiel a couple times. Um, I know a bunch of people in that sort of tech bro, um, you know, sort of uh, teal world, Silicon Valley world orbit, um, who are infatuated with politics, who um, think that they've sort of figured out the secret sauce in the wake of the Trump era to how to, you know, achieve all their hopes and dreams. I like some of those guys out there. I can take or leave others out there. This is not a personal thing. Um, but this seems like a perfect example of how people who don't know a lot about politics, people who are of a certain kind of like um, on the spectrum uh, engineer mindset who like to think that the way you figure out complicated things is finding the right formula um, and completely blowing it when it comes to politics. It used to be, it's funny, like, you know, for AI and whatever, I used to go talk to Silicon Valley types every now and then. And I remember when they thought I was the crazy right winger, you know, and they were like, you know, um, you know, this is, this is, you know, your, my stuff was too hardcore and too weird for them. Um, and they thought it was going to be too off-putting for normal American politics and that kind of stuff. And now, you know, a lot of those same types think I'm the sort of pansy-ass uh, rhino cuck. Um, and, it's, and I think this is my theory of what happened with Masters. Again, I don't know. Maybe he's always been a rabid right-winger. I, I sincerely doubt it. Um, I think that these guys saw the Trump stuff, saw what Steve Bannon did. I, I, one Silicon Valley guy I know told me about how um, a whole bunch of big money people in Silicon Valley were fascinated with what the Mercers did. You know, the Mercers are these guys who um, um, backed Bannon and Trump um, and the, the sort of the Breitbart play. And, um, and, and my understanding is sort of made their lives kind of miserable, which does not break my heart at all. Um, as a result, but they had huge success. Like normally in the world of philanthropy and that kind of stuff, you just don't get a lot of return on your money. But if you look at how much Mercer money could be credited with moving the political Overton window in the United States, um, it just got a lot of people's attention out there. And then they saw what Trump did. They saw, you know, the, the sort of the teal role in the Trump world. And they said, Oh my gosh! You can actually have a big impact on politics if you um, if you pander to the right constituency, if you turn out the right base, if you sort of emulate the Trumpian model in one way or another. Um, you can actually be a major historical player, and I think that's what what Peter Thiel is trying to do now with you know these mini me's and with these strategic bets on politics. 
And, and Masters, who I gather worked for Teal, um, is a perfect example of this. Um, if I'm right, you know, like, again, he may have been an ardent pro-lifer his entire life, but it sure feels to me like he thought that, okay, you never get punished from going to 11 um, in this new GOP environment. So I'll go to 11 on everything and I'll make fun of people as losers and cucks and weirdos who um, stop short of my position. And then all of a sudden he discovers, oh crap, I'm way out ahead of the electorate, even in Arizona, even among Republicans. And he doubles back and changes his position on abortion. And the thing is, like, I have complicated views. So let, let, let's talk about the substance here for a second. Like, I used to have this argument with Peter Beinart all the time. Like, I always thought if you were an ardent pro-choicer and you become a pro-lifer, that is less morally problematic than if you're an ardent pro-lifer and you become a pro-choicer. And it is simply because, and, and again, I, I want to be very clear about this. I am not trying to denigrate one side or the other in this argument. But if you take both arguments at on their own terms, if you take both positions on their own terms, the pro-life position is that you are taking a human life when uh, you terminate a pregnancy, particularly when you terminate a viable pregnancy, right? So let's make it easier just for the sake of argument that a third trimester abortion is a form of homicide, right? That is the pro-life position. And the, 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 the sort of pure pro-choice position is all of that doesn't matter because a woman has sovereignty over her own body and she gets to make these decisions and nobody else does. Okay, these are both defensible positions. Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds of adjudicating one or the other, but if you believe that it's a that it is a human life that is being taken, and then for political purposes, the way Joe Biden, Dick Gephardt, and a gazillion other Democrats did, uh, become fully pro-choice, um, you need a good argument. You need a really good argument, right? And I just haven't seen any new new evidence come in that says. Oh, it's not like I let me put it this way. If you don't believe it's a human being with with moral status, for our purposes, that's fine. Because that's your position. If you have the position that it was that that the fetus has moral status, that it is a human being, and that taking its life is wrong, and then you switch positions, if your argument is simply that, oh, I'm switching positions because a woman has a right to choose or whatever, that's insufficient to me because you need to provide me with evidence that you saw something that talked you out of believing that it was a human being with, with uh, um, the right to life, right? I mean, like when in doubt, you should be on the side of protecting human life. And um, if you can provide me with plausible evidence about having reached the benefit of the doubt that it's not human life, I'm very eager to hear it. But you almost never hear politicians who switch from the strong pro-life to the strong pro-choice position 
give you any biological, metaphysical, moral, um, philosophical explanation about why they change their view about the moral status of the fetus. Instead, they change the terms of the argument. And so it just seems to me the preponderance of the evidence of required to justify moving from the pro-life to the pro-choice situation is different because that whole when in doubt side on the side of life thing is act lends itself to moving to the pro-life position. Because if you see it as something that you just can't fully know, that you can't, you know, you, you, you can't be sure, but you think there's a plausible or a colorable argument on the pro-life side that to me, um, is supportive of the pro-life position precisely because you don't know. I mean, but put it this way, you know, like if I put a big button in front of you and say, if you push this, there's a 10% chance that, uh, a trap door will open up and somebody will fall to their death. Um, you'll never see them. You don't know them, but you know, there's a 10%, take my word for it. There's a 10% chance. Like, you need a good reason to press the button. Like, you know, I mean, what's the upside to pressing the button? If there is no upside to the pressing the button, you shouldn't press the button because even a 10% chance that you're going to kill somebody is more than good enough reason not to press a button. And I'm not trying to trivialize, you know, the very complicated stuff that goes on with having abortion because it's nothing like a cost-free press of a button for a woman um, on either side of the issue. My only point is, is that... Um, um, switching from the pro-life to the pro-choice position without a good explanation is more indefensible to me than switching from the pro-choice position to the pro-life position um, without a good explanation, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't provide a good explanation if you're switching from either position, right? I mean, like, I never really, I, I, I think, I used to not think Mitt Romney's explanation was sincere. I've come to believe that it is, um, but like, I never liked his explanation about why he moved from, um, pro-choice to pro-life, um, in part because the story he told, and I heard him say it many times, was that um, um, when he was doing the, looking into the stem cell stuff, and someone said, well, this might be life, or this is life, or whatever, and, and he had some, and he said, well, life is life, okay, then I'm pro-life. And it just strikes me, it's very strange that at the blastocyst or, you know, you know, or, or, or embryo stage. Um, once you have explained to you what an embryo is or, you know, whatever, or fertilized egg is that all of a sudden you become pro-life and, but the arguments about say partial birth abortion didn't move you. That just never seemed very persuasive to me. But I think Mitt Romney is sufficiently a man of honor and stuff that I, I now believe him. I think that just basically he hadn't looked into or thought through the issues very much. And then once he started taking it seriously, he, he moved his position, which is fine. I am hard pressed to believe this has anything to do with what Blake Masters is doing in the middle of a campaign. When you are on video many, many times talking about how you are a hundred percent pro-lifer and how you know, abortion doctors need to be criminally prosecuted. And we need a federal personhood law that bans all abortions at any stage. And then all of a sudden you go in and you change your website after some reporters from NBC call you up 
about your views and you start attacking people for claiming that you're 100% pro-lifer, this doesn't sound to me like Blake Masters went to some ashram or monastery and wrestled with his soul and came out in favor of a more nuanced position. And so if you just take him on his own terms, where he was, I don't know, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, whatever, and where he is today, he is, you know, uh, basically saying, I'm more in favor of murder, or at least homicide, um, than I was 10 days ago, and he's not offering an explanation for it. At least that's, that's from what I can tell about this controversy, and I, I find that grotesque. And I got to say, it makes me very glad this whole thing. I know I've talked about this a bunch of times about the abortion stuff. I've gotten grief most of my professional life for having this sort of angels on a head of a pin um, nuanced position about why I say I'm essentially pro-life. And people have been dunking on me for years saying, you know, there's no such thing as essentially pro-life. But there is. And it's because I have a more nuanced position. I am, for the most part, pro-life. And I've said, you know, on this, you can go back and find the podcasts, you know, uh, where I am largely intellectually convinced by um, arguments from people like Ramesh Panuru and others about the intellectual case about how, uh, for their sort of more, more pure pro-life position. But emotionally, uh, intuitively, um, I am just less... Um, sold on the idea that they're the same moral stakes or the same public policy imperatives about um, a just fertilized egg versus a fully formed fetus that could live outside of the womb in the third trimester. It just seems to me they're di different issues. And I can arouse lots of righteous anger and passion about late-term abortions that I can't about, say, the morning-after pill. And um, that's sort of where I've always been. And similarly, I've always been, you know, more on the side of Roe was constitutional garbage um, than I was, you know, all in on the pro-life issue. And, uh, and I'm glad that, you know, I sort of was, that I stuck to my guns about all this because now in the post-Roe world, you see a lot of people who just took the easy path and said, whatever the audiences that they were talking to wanted to hear because it was a free position to take because there are going to be no consequences. No, it wasn't going to come up for a vote because Roe was the settled law. And now people like Blake Masters, who never, my strong suspicion, put much thought into this kind of stuff. They thought, oh, politics is easy. It's, you know, it's a plug and play kind of computer program thing. And all I got to do is spout the crap that the focus groups tell me to spout and um, or follow the sort of MAGA model and I'll be fine. And it turns out, no, that's just not true. You actually have to know why you hold certain positions and be able to defend them or um, you're going to get caught off guard. And um, I think that one of the problems that we've got these days on the or I shouldn't say we um, one of the problems that the Republicans have these days is that um, they've kind of they've been taken off guard by the Dobbs decision. They don't know how to make their own arguments and, um, or the people who can make the defensible, plausible, nuanced arguments, um, they're staying quiet because they kind of know that talking about abortion is problematic for them. Um, and so the only people who are, um, 
defining how Republicans are talking about abortion um, are either the, the, the straight up extremists who are like, yeah, it's God's will for a 10 year old to get raped and have a baby, um, which is just not a great argument politically or frankly, morally, um, um, or the amateurs who realize too late that they're, that they don't know how to defend their positions, that they took positions they either didn't really hold or that, um, proved to be too inconvenient to hold on to them any further. And so they start, you know, retroactively changing their websites like Blake Masters. Um, you know, if you make a down payment on your credibility when it's uh, inconvenient, it'll turn out to be really convenient for you down the road when um, having credibility will really matter. And I think there's just an enormous number of people in politics who are not used to that of, uh, of thinking about things in those ways. Um, so I'm trying to think what else was I supposed to, did I want to talk about today? Um, all right. So, uh, uh, there was actually just a law. I, I I'm assuming Ryan cut it out because there was like a good minute pause. Um, just now because I was going to start talking about something and then I looked at how much, how far I've gotten into this and realized now I don't, I don't think I will. Um, um, I do recommend going back and listening to the last few episodes of The Remnant. We've had some really good stuff. I really enjoyed talking to Russ Roberts. I think, you know, his book is really staying with me and people should should definitely check it out. I do think that one thing that, like, um, one sort of analogy um, or takeaway from it is that, um, I don't know, analogy is the wrong way wrong way to say it but um you know as we sort of discussed in our, in the podcast a lot of what he is saying is that life as lived is kind of immune to not entirely immune but it is um is is not reducible to purely rational inputs and um understandings that there's just simply more to a life well lived, um, full of meaning and flourishing and reward, um, then can be sort of charted on a, on a graph. And I think that that's the kind of, that's the kind of, um, point that is at the one hand, on the one hand, kind of is sort of familiar and cliched. Um, but it's also the kind of thing that I think, um, I wish people had more appreciation of in all sorts of realms of life, not just in terms of like career planning and decision-making um, the way uh, Russ talks about, but also, you know, this was in some ways it's, it's, it's it, I guess this is the analogy that's been poking around in my head. It's analogous to the part of the argument of my last book, which is that, um, you know, America has a culture. America has a um, has a character, has a personality that um, the world was sort of political philosophy and and theory and economics and and academic inquiry can capture really important and interesting things about. But at the end of the day. Um, 
it comes up short in sort of summarizing what what America is and is supposed to be. And I guess this is sort of ties in with what I was talking about last week about about patriotism. Um, you know, let's put it this way: there's an enormous amount of literature about how families work, about the internal dynamics of families, the psychology of parenthood, of childhood, of 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 marriages, and all these kinds of things. And yet, if you've known any family. Um, including different branches of your own, you know that each one is is um, is unique in a certain way. As it's you know, this is the the, the 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 snowflake thing that I was talking about after my brother died. Um, um, every family is um, is unique, and they can all look very similar or far from unique from the outside, but on the inside, the interplay of personalities, the interplay of past and future, um, uh, all these things, you know, there's just simply no way that anybody um, listening here doesn't know to some extent what I mean about how, you know, the, the richness and texture of their own families is going to be something that simply cannot be rationally captured on a graph or a piece of paper or in a formula um or on a you know on a list of pros pros and cons and um i think there's something to that about nations as well and everyone knows i am not a huge fan of nationalism but i am a fan of fans the wrong word i am a believer in a thing called national character and i think america has a national character I think every country has its own national character um, that is hard for people outside of it to fully appreciate it. That, um, um, but that is real. Um, this is one of these reasons why you know there's a lot of talk about fascism again these days. And um, you know, one of my complaints about the way people talk about fascism is that they make it sound like fascism is synonymous with. Um, you know, genocidal racism and bigotry or anti-Semitism and all that. And it's really just not true. I'm not trying to defend fascism. I'm a decided opponent of fascism. But, um, you know, Nazism is different than Italian fascism, which was different than whatever we want to call Spain was and all that. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that different nations have different characters and different cultures and you can say that that fascism or nationalism, you know, brings out different aspects of different cultures in different ways, um, in the way that a crisis will bring out the nature of different families in different ways. Um, but, you know, dying fascism was cruel and dictatorial and it killed people, um, but it wasn't genocidally anti-Semitic or racist. Um at least not until fairly late when basically it became a vassal state of Nazi Germany. And um, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to get deep in the weeds on, on Nazism and fascism. My only point is, is that, um, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about current critics of the United States, internal critics, critic and particularly critics on the right is that they want to reduce 
the United States to the fruit of a theory. Like, and, 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 you know, and I get it. There are a lot of people on my side of this argument who help them when they say America is an idea, you know, and all that. And I get why people get annoyed with the idea that America is simply an idea. I've never thought America is simply an idea. I do think America is an idea, but it's an idea that is manifest in the real world through experience and history and, and, and lived, um, lives. And, um, and so when people want to say that, you know, American, you know, that the classical liberalism doesn't work as a theory of how to like live your life or run a country and all that kind of stuff, they have a point what, you know, because we don't live by theory. We lived by experience. We, um, we carve out footpaths in the wilderness and then we have path dependence based upon those footpaths. And, um, and I just think that like America would be a much, much better, safer, calmer place if people could stop trying to come up with new theories about what America is what America could be, what America should be about how our system should work. And instead just simply said, you know, this is the way we do things in America. This is who we are, you know, like, you know, the way a family might say, you know, look, we like having breakfast for dinner. It's just who we are. I know other families do it differently, whatever. Um, you know, one of the things that I envy places like France and and other countries about is that they kind of know who they are, right? And that's me. And, and what I'm saying here is, I'm not saying that we should all get along. Um, France is not exactly known for um, uh, comedy and consensus on all political things. That's not my point at all. My point is, is just like there just should be certain things that are sort of out of bounds um, and not relitigated every, you know, five minutes the way they are in this country. Um, because there's just sort of settled questions. We have free speech in this country. Let's not have an argument about when free speech, about how free speech is like illegitimate because we're going to have free speech in this country and we could pass laws saying we don't have free speech in this country, but culturally we have a culture of free speech. It may not be thriving in certain elite institutions right now. Um, but for the most part, you know, this is just sort of the way this this is what this is what it means to be an American. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like it would be so much better for social peace and social progress if you could get Americans on the right and the left, so many of whom simply talk like they don't like this country the way it is, um, to simply accept there's an American culture that is more liberal and tolerant and accepting than some people um, on the right and the left in their own ways want to understand. And then it is more intolerant of certain things than uh, people on the left and the right. Some people on the left and the right want it to be, but it's just, it's just this, that's, that's what America is. That's how we do things. And, um, but there's this such a surplus of theory and 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 hypotheticality where we 
assume that the other side has some new idea about how to run the country. And sometimes it's not a baseless assumption because there are jackwads saying they have a new theory about how to organize and run the country. Um, and that triggers a response about how we need to have a new set of ideas to fight their set of ideas about how to run the country. We don't need any new ideas about how to run the country. This is a great and good country. It's a decent country. Um, we'd be much better off if we just lived up to the old boring ideas about how this country should be that have been on the books for a very long time. Um, and I think, anyway, I think that that's, you know, that's the analogy I was trying to get to about the Russ Roberts book is like, you know, or about this talk about how all families are, are unique. All families are unique, but every family has a conception of, what the ideal of family life is that is pretty similar to everybody else's. Obviously there are going to be, you know, deviations from the norm and outliers and all the rest, but every family has an idea of what it means to be acting like our best selves. And every country has an idea of what it means to be acting like our best selves. And I just wish that more people on the right and left could understand that being our best selves is not a political enterprise first and foremost. It is a cultural enterprise. It is a personal enterprise. It is, it is a psychological project. And if people were their best selves, um, or just tried to be right. I mean, this is sort of like on Twitter. If I was saying this the other day, if, if 95% of the people on Twitter just simply tried not to be assholes, right? I'm not saying succeed because sometimes assholery is in the eye of the beholder and that's fine. And, you know, one person's jerk is another person's truth teller, blah, 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 blah. But if 95% of the people on Twitter, never mind 100%, simply tried to avoid being jerks, Twitter would be 500% better. And so would the country. Um, this, this obsession with confusing being a jerk with being brave this idea that you just see everywhere and particularly in the liner code of social media that um political courage and moral courage requires being your worst self um which is sort of this mutated form of Saul Alinskyism i just see it everywhere um and i see it infecting parts of you know the broader culture and um you know i think it's sad and i think that, um, you know, one of the things that you could take away from, from Russ's book, I know I'm rambling here. I'm just trying to figure out how to stick the landing. Um, and from all of this is turn away from sort of strategic thinking of thinking if I, you know, if I follow these, these life hacks, these three steps, um, if I, um, um, if I just sort of um, master the algorithm, um, for success, everything will be great. There is no algorithm. Um, you know, life is, uh, just so much richer and more complicated than anything that can be reduced to the page. And, um, I think part of the problem we have in our culture is that as, as people recede from living outside of their homes to sort of, uh, cocooning within them, 
um, we start seeing everything in sort of two dimensional terms as a form of sort of, of, of entertainment and connecting the dots kind of thinking and strategic thinking and, Oh, so-and-so must be doing this because they're trying to achieve that. And we have to outthink them by doing it this way. And that's just not how actual life works. Um, and, and it's not purely just an excess of rationality. That's the problem. It's an excess of, of sort of, of reductionist thinking that I think pervades both the right and the left these days as they, um, as they see politics as a kind of game theory rather than, um, a way to, um, protect and defend what is great about this country. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. I'm just, uh, I'm a little out of it. Did not sleep well. Um, and I will be back home next week. Looking forward to it. Ryan, I apologize for all the cleaning up you're going to have to do on all this. Um, but everybody, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. Cut this part, Brian.